Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 13th day of January, 2008. I'd like to encourage all the listeners to the Corbett Report to visit the Corbett Report homepage, www.corbettreport.com, where you'll be able to find a documentation list with links to all of the information cited in today's episode, sorted by time index. And now it's time for the real news. Today we feature just one story in the Real News section. This story is from the Corbett Report, January 7th, 2008. Headlined, U.S. State Department official helped pass nuclear secrets to Turkey, Pakistan, Israel. Links lead from the State Department to the man who funded the 9-11 hijackers. FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds has gone further than ever before about what she discovered while working as an FBI translator. In a groundbreaking report in the Sunday Times yesterday, Edmonds reveals that she had first-hand access to evidence that Israel, Pakistan, and Turkey have high-level moles operating in some of the United States' most sensitive nuclear facilities, and that they were aided by a well-known State Department official. The article details how the State Department official accepted bribes from the Turkish diplomatic community working on behalf of Pakistan's intelligence service, the ISI. These nuclear secrets were then passed on to A.Q. Khan, who in turn supplied nuclear secrets to Libya and Iran, and was reported to have met with bin Laden shortly before 9-11. The 9-11 link to this story is perhaps even more startling. Edmonds asserts that the head of the network of moles was none other than General Mahmoud Ahmad, the former head of the ISI, and the man who wired $100,000 to the lead 9-11 hijacker, and then just happened to be watching the events unfold over breakfast with the chairman of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. The report does not name the State Department official involved, nor the household name Pentagon officials who were aiding foreign intelligence agents in a secret network of moles. Edmonds is still bound by the gag order placed on her in 2004 by John Ashcroft. However, Edmonds has followed up this bombshell story with a cryptic post on her website, which names all the names involved in pictures. The figures in the pictures have been identified by the Cannon Fire blog and include the following. Richard Pearl, Douglas Faith, Eric Edelman, Mark Grossman, Brent Scowcroft, and Larry Franklin, among others. It remains unclear whether these revelations are linked to earlier revelations that a company related to former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was selling nuclear secrets to North Korea. Edmonds has been gagged from telling what she knows about information she discovered relevant to the 9-11 affair and FBI investigations into foreign agents. Her testimony in public hearings was retroactively classified by Ashcroft, who feared that the information she possessed was a threat to national security. I encourage my listeners to get this story from my website and email it to everyone you know. This is groundbreaking information. This is one of the 9-11 whistleblowers who is blowing the whistle on what she learned in her time as an FBI translator in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. This is extremely important information, and I trust that my listeners will understand its relevance and will help me in spreading the word about this article.
But Mrs. Mason, the Welfare Association is only trying to protect you. Well, we didn't want to talk about this until you were well again. But you really don't want any more children. Not if I can help it. We can't take care of the ones we got. Well, there you are. That's just what I'm telling you. Now, what we propose to do will prevent others from being born. I don't want to go back to that hospital. But the operation is very simple. Yeah, I'll bet it is. Well, there's nothing to it, really. Now, the state is only trying to befriend you. When Dr. Brooks reported your case, we gave you financial help at once. But now we find you need more than that. And you want Alice to go, too? Why, of course. She has your blood in her veins. Maybe she won't want to go. <laughs> you leave that to me. I'll make her understand it's for her own good. Who's going to take care of the kids, then? Yeah. I can't do it alone. Oh, now, that's all been attended to. We'll send the cripple boy to an orthopedic hospital. What, Bill? Yes. And the others will be placed in institutions where they'll receive a proper medical attention. But I don't want it. And that leaves me here to look out for myself. Huh? <laughs> no, my dear man. You're going to the hospital, too. What do you mean? And let them operate on me? Nothing doing. What kind of a sap do you take think I am? Easy. Take it easy. <laughs> it is nothing to be alarmed about. Maybe not, but I got my rights and I won't give them up. Well, of course, the authorities would rather do it with your consent. But if you persist in refusing, you must understand that all financial help will be withdrawn at once. Welcome to episode 28 of the Corbett Report, entitled Eugenics Never Really Went Away. What you just heard was a clip from the 1934 public domain film Tomorrow's Children, dealing with a long-suppressed area of United States history, that of compulsory sterilization. In the early part of the 20th century, over 65,000 Americans were sterilized at the hands of 33 state governments, including many mentally ill, epileptic, blind, deaf, or physically deformed individuals many of them sterilized against their will in the name of eradicating their genes from the gene pool. We have long been taught to associate eugenics exclusively with the Nazi regime and their idea of the supreme Aryan race. And the corollary of that is that eugenics started and ended with the Nazi regime. Many thus believe that eugenics is nothing more than a cautionary tale best relegated to the annals of scientific history. But did eugenics ever really go away? Ah, Earth. Healthy, strong, and full of life. But wait, what's that you've got there? It looks like you've got a case of the humans. To be a healthy Earth, all of your elements must be in equilibrium. However, these parasites slaughter all other forms of life. Guzzle your natural resources. And poison your atmosphere. Once contracted, humans act quickly. They multiply over 300,000 a day, consuming anything that crosses their path. Earth is just the start. Who knows what's next? Now, to be sure, it seems like a vast chasm indeed between the early 1930s American sterilization laws and that short film from a independent directorial studio known as Three-Legged Legs, spouting environmentalist anti-human propaganda. And it's not a chasm that I ask my listeners to leap over lightly. 
But in order to get an understanding of how these seemingly disparate topics relate, it's important to step back and take a look at the real history of eugenics, which most assuredly did not start in German eugenicist labs under Hitler, but started much earlier in England and quickly spread to America. In order to get a better understanding of the history of eugenics, we're going to take a listen to an excellent documentary, perhaps the most important documentary I have ever seen, and one which I could not recommend strongly enough to my audience. If you have not seen this documentary yet, you must see it in the immediate future, and you have no excuse as it is available for free on the internet at Google Video. This is Alex Jones's Endgame. Alex Jones, of course, gives the right to freely copy and distribute his works, so if you support this work, please make copies and give it out to your friends. And if you would like to support Alex Jones, again, I urge you to become a PrisonPlanet.tv member or to buy a copy of the film directly from the InfoWars shop. Links to both of those can be found from my website, CorbettReport.com. Let's listen to an excerpt from Alex Jones's Endgame about the history of eugenics. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, credited as the father of eugenics, saw an opportunity to advance mankind by taking the reins of Darwin's evolution theory and applied social principles to develop social Darwinism. The families, Darwin, Galton, Huxley, and Wedgwood were so obsessed with their new social design theory that they pledged their families would only breed with each other. They falsely predicted that within only a few generations, they would produce supermen. The emerging pseudoscience was only codifying the practice of inbreeding, already popular within elites for millennia. The four families experiment was a disaster. Within only two generations of inbreeding, close to 90% of their offspring either died at birth or were seriously mentally or physically handicapped. The moneyed class of the planet, and particularly the royal families of the world, who were already obsessed with breeding and filled with a predatory disdain for the underclass, seized on the new science and began aggressively enforcing its aims worldwide. Biometrics appears to be a new science, but it was actually developed by Galton back in the 1870s as a way to track racial traits and genetic histories, and as a way to decide who would be licensed to breed. In 1904, the Cold Springs Harbor Research Facility was started in the United States by eugenicist Charles Davenport with the funding of prominent robber barons Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Harriman. In 1907, the first sterilization laws were passed in the United States. Citizens with mild deformities or low test scores on their report cards were arrested and forcibly sterilized. In 1910, the U.S. Eugenics Record Office was set up. By then, the British had created the first network of social workers expressly to serve as spies and enforcers of the eugenics race cult that was rapidly taking control of Western society. The social workers would decide who would have their children taken away, who would be sterilized, and in some cases, who would be quietly murdered. In 1911, the Rockefeller family exports eugenics to Germany 
by bankrolling the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which later would form a central pillar in the Third Reich. At the 1912 International Eugenics Conference in London, eugenics becomes an international craze and gains superstar status. The futurist and best-selling sci-fi author H.G. Wells had studied biology under top eugenicist and was spreading the new faith worldwide. In 1916, H.G. Wells' lover, Margaret Sanger, starts her promotion of eugenics in the United States. In 1923, Sanger receives massive funding from the Rockefeller family. Sanger wrote to fellow eugenicist Clarence J. Gamble that black leaders would need to be recruited to act as front men in sterilization programs directed against black communities. In 1924, Hitler pins Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, and credits U.S. eugenicist as his inspiration. Hitler even wrote a fan letter to American eugenicist and conservationist Madison Grant, calling his race-based book, The Passing of the Great Race, his Bible. Hitler developed the plan for mass extermination of the Jews and what he called other sub-races, as well as the handicapped from Grant. By 1927, eugenics hit the mainstream. The so-called science was aggressively pushed through contests at schools, churches, and at state fairs. Churches competed in contests with big cash prizes to see who could best implement eugenics into their sermons. Major denominations then tell Americans that Jesus is for eugenics. That same year in the United States, more than 25 states passed forced sterilization laws and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of brutal sterilization policies. When Hitler came to power in 1933, one of his first acts was to pass national eugenics laws modeled after laws in the United States. By 1936, Germany had become the world leader in eugenics for taking effective actions to sterilize and euthanize hundreds of thousands of victims. The big three of American eugenics, Davenport, Laughlin and Goethe, were dispatched by the Rockefellers to Germany, where they advised the Nazis on the fine-tuning of their extermination system. With the strong support of the U.S. and England, Germany had gone over the edge and tens of millions would pay with their lives. At the end of the war, the Allies protected from prosecution the very Nazi scientist that had tortured thousands of people to death. The Nazi brand of eugenics had embarrassed the elites, but they had no intention of stopping their plans. The Allies literally fought with each other over who would get top Nazi eugenicist. It didn't matter if the SS doctors had tortured tens of thousands to death. They were free to go. The Angel of Death, Joseph Mengele, and his boss, Otmar von Verscher, were not prosecuted, and von Verscher even continued his work in Germany after the war. Eugenicists were angry that their great work had been exposed they then scrambled to camouflage their agenda. Eugenics Quarterly became Social Biology. The American Birth Control League became Planned Parenthood. New terms like Transhumanism, Population Control, 
sustainability, conservation, and environmentalism replaced racial hygiene and social Darwinism. Many eugenicists of the previous period engaged in what they called crypto-eugenics. Purposefully taking their eugenics beliefs underground, they became highly respected anthropologists, biologists, and geneticists in the post-war world. Well, those are some pretty startling claims. Are you really expecting us to believe, Mr. Jones, that top geneticists, biologists, anthropologists, and academics secretly harbor these eugenicist ideals? Hmm. What was the name of one of those laboratories mentioned in that report? The Cold Springs Harbor Laboratory. Well, that came up in the news recently. I think it was October of last year. Now, why was that in the news? Oh, yeah. An American professor who won the Nobel Prize for co-discovering the structure of DNA is drawing criticism for claiming black people are less intelligent than whites. Dr. James Watson was set to deliver a speech at the London Science Museum in Britain, but the appearance was cancelled after Watson's response to a question on Africa's long-term future was published in a British newspaper. Watson said, quote, All our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says not really. Watson's research lab, the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, has suspended him over his comments. Okay, so it seems that certain well-respected Nobel Prize-winning scientists share these Nazi supreme race philosophies. And as we remember from episode 26 of the Corbett Report, the eugenics movement certainly did not die out completely after the Nazis were eliminated, as the Rockefellers continued to be highly supportive of those efforts, including John D. Rockefeller III's efforts to set up the Population Council in the 1950s, which worked on the problem of overpopulation and tried to eliminate the third world hordes. And as we remember from episode 17 of the Corbett Report, the myth of overpopulation has long been a thinly masked veil of racist supreme race ideology, which targets third world nations for depopulation. But how does all of this relate to environmentalism? Well, for that, let's turn back to an author who was featured in episode 6 of the Corbett Report, Michael Crichton. You might remember in that clip from episode 6 of the Corbett Report, Michael Crichton argued that environmentalism is indeed a religion which inspires blind loyalty in its followers rather than critical scientific analysis. Well, in this essay written by Michael Crichton to accompany his 2004 work, State of Fear, Michael Crichton goes much further in pointing out the dark implications of this environmentalist religion that has taken hold of much of the academic and scientific caste. The essay is entitled, Why Politicized Science is Dangerous, and it reads in part, quote, Imagine that there is a new scientific theory that warns of an impending crisis and points to a way out. The theory quickly draws support from leading scientists, politicians, and celebrities around the world. Research is funded by distinguished philanthropies and carried out at prestigious universities. The crisis is reported frequently in the media. The science is taught in college and high school classrooms. I don't mean global warming. I'm talking about another theory, which rose to prominence a century ago. Its supporters included Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Winston Churchill. 
It was approved by Supreme Court Justices Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandy, who ruled in its favor. The famous names who supported it included Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, activist Margaret Sanger, botanist Luther Burbank, Leland Stanford, founder of Stanford University, the novelist H.G. Wells, the playwright George Bernard Shaw, and hundreds of others. Nobel Prize winners gave support. Research was backed by the Carnegie and Rockefeller Foundations. The Cold Springs Harbor Institute was built to carry out this research, but important work was also done at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, and Johns Hopkins. Legislation to address the crisis was passed in states from New York to California. These efforts had the support of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Medical Association, and the National Research Council. It was said that if Jesus were alive, he would have supported this effort. All in all, the research, legislation, and molding of public opinion surrounding the theory went on for almost half a century. Those who opposed the theory were shouted down and called reactionary, blind to reality, or just plain ignorant. But in hindsight, what is surprising is that so few people objected. Today we know that this famous theory that gained so much support was actually pseudoscience. The crisis it claimed was non-existent, and the actions taken in the name of the theory were morally and criminally wrong. Ultimately, they led to the deaths of millions of people. The theory was eugenics, and its history was so dreadful, and to those who were caught up in it so embarrassing, that it is now rarely discussed. But it is a story that should be well known to every citizen, so that its horrors are not repeated. After World War II, nobody was a eugenicist, and nobody had ever been a eugenicist. Biographers of the celebrated and the powerful did not dwell on the attractions of this philosophy to their subjects, and sometimes did not mention it at all. Eugenics ceased to be a subject for college classrooms, although some argue that its ideas continued to have currency in disguised form. But in retrospect, three points stand out. First, despite the construction of Cold Springs Harbor Laboratory, despite the efforts of universities and the pleadings of lawyers, there was no scientific basis for eugenics. In fact, nobody at that time knew what a gene really was. The movement was able to proceed because it employed vague terms never rigorously defined. Feeble-mindedness could mean anything from poverty to illiteracy to epilepsy. Similarly, there was no clear definition of degenerate or unfit. Second, the eugenics movement was really a social program masquerading as a scientific one. What drove it was concern about immigration and racism and undesirable people moving into one's neighborhood or country. Once again, vague terminology helped conceal what was really going on. Third, and most distressing, the scientific establishment in both the United States and Germany did not mount any sustained protest. Quite the contrary. In Germany, scientists quickly fell into line with the program. Modern German researchers have gone back to review Nazi documents from the 1930s. They expected to find directives telling scientists what research should be done, but none were necessary. In the words of Ute Dijkman, scientists, including those who were not members of the Nazi party, helped to get funding for their work through their modified behavior and direct cooperation with the state. Now we are engaged in a great new theory that once again has drawn the support of politicians, scientists, and celebrities around the world. Once again the theory is promoted by major foundations. Once again the research is carried out at prestigious universities. Once again legislation is passed and social programs are urged in its name. 
Once again, critics are few and harshly dealt with. Once again, the measures being urged have little basis in fact or science. Once again, groups with other agendas are hiding behind a movement that appears high-minded. Once again, claims of moral superiority are used to justify extreme actions. Once again, the fact that some people are hurt is shrugged off because an abstract cause is said to be greater than any human consequences. Once again, vague terms like sustainability and generational justice, terms that have no agreed definition, are employed in the service of a new crisis. I'm not arguing that global warming is the same as eugenics, but the similarities are not superficial. End quote. Now, despite Mr. Crichton's protestation to the contrary, it can be argued that environmentalism is indeed linked to eugenics. And in order to make that link, we have to understand the modern environmental movement in terms of two things. Firstly, Malthusianism, and secondly, eugenics. Let's look at the relation between Malthusianism, eugenics, and environmentalism by again turning back to an excerpt from Endgame by Alex Jones. In December of 1974, the U.S. government made third world population reduction a central national security issue. The operation plan titled National Security Study Memorandum 200 was simply a regurgitation of the British Commission on Population created by King George VI of England in 1944, which openly stated that populous third world nations posed a threat to the international elite's monopoly of global power. The Kissinger-authored U.S. plan targeted 13 key countries where massive population reduction was called for. Kissinger recommended that IMF and World Bank loans be given on condition that nations initiate aggressive population control programs, such as sterilization. Kissinger also recommended that food be used as a weapon and that instigating wars was also a helpful tool in reducing population. In 1972, the Nixon White House also implemented a eugenics policy which was directed by George Herbert Walker Bush, then United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Bush advised China on the formulation of their one-child policy and directed the federal government to forcibly sterilize more than 40% of Native American women on reservations. The Bilderberg-dominated Club of Rome advocated environmentalism as the best front to implement population reduction. Western populations would accept serfdom if it was packaged as saving the earth. Industrialization of Africa, Asia, and Latin America could be blocked. Citizens would more willingly give up their national sovereignty if it were sold as a way to help the planet. The think tank also concocted the peak oil fraud as a way to create artificial scarcity. And the Club of Rome has been aggressively pushing a global carbon tax as a way to fund their planetary government. In the draft copy of the United Nations Global Biodiversity Assessment, it states very clearly that we must reduce the human population from what's current level of about six billion people down to about one billion people. In the 1970s, South Africa developed race-specific bioweapons target blacks and Asians and then subsequently sold the technology to Israel in the mid-1980s. In September of 2000, the Project for a New American Century 
published a document in which Dick Cheney described race-specific bioweapons as politically useful tools. And somebody mentioned, well, why would they want to reduce the human population when that means less money for them? Most people have no idea. They're not after money. They have all the money they need. They're after power. That's their aphrodisiac. The overlords of the New World Order are now aggressively pushing for a worldwide one-child policy. The Chinese one-child policy was phased in gradually. In the 60s when it began, you only had to pay a tax penalty. Only later did they imprison you if you had more than one child. Now the exact same proposals to penalize couples who have more than one child are being made in the United States, England and Europe. In the push to reduce global warming, children, according to some, are the new culprits. A think tank in the UK says too many kids are what's making the planet worse, saying large families, anything over two children really, should be frowned upon as an environmental no-no, uh, akin to not reusing your plastic bags, driving one of those big gas-guzzling cars, uh, taking long trips overseas. The UK, in fact, has negative growth. I think Canada's does too that still families in our rich countries shouldn't have more than two kids. Environmentalism, then, is a movement that's been unmasked as a vehicle that's been taken over by the eugenicists. One need only look at the origins of the World Wildlife Fund for an example, the World Wildlife Fund having been set up by Julian Huxley, brother of Aldous Huxley and part of that famed Huxley family, which Alex Jones referred to in the earlier clip from Endgame regarding the bizarre pledge by the Darwins, Huxleys, Wedgwoods, and Davenports to only breed with each other. The Huxleys, of course, have been massively involved with the eugenicist movement since its early inception, and Julian Huxley, who was also part of UNESCO, was one of its key proponents in the 1950s and 60s, especially when he was setting up the World Wildlife Fund. And for an example of how the Huxley family was at the epicenter of the eugenics movement, you need only listen to an engaging clip of a speech given by his brother, Aldous Huxley, in 1962 at Berkeley, in which Aldous Huxley admits that he wrote Brave New World not out of some science fiction fantasy delusion, but because he knows that that's what people are really planning for the scientific dictatorships of the future. Or you can take the first president of the World Wildlife Fund, Prince Bernhard, an actual SS officer, or you can look at one of the World Wildlife Fund's key patrons, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, who has of course gone on record in the past to say that he wishes he could be reincarnated as a virus so that he could contribute something to the problem of overpopulation. This insane paranoia of the elite about overpopulation is really unmasked as a fear about the growing hordes of underclass, which they fear is a pollution of the gene pool. In order to purify the gene pool and get rid of the undesirable lower-class elements, we must get rid of overpopulation. The ideal population, of course, being an arbitrary figure chosen by the ruling elite, who are prepared to use a combination of propaganda, science, diplomacy, and war in order to cull the population down to that level. All of this is, of course, disturbing information. But what about the future of eugenics? Obviously, eugenics has not stopped and is not likely to stop in the near future. And as technology improves, and biotechnology in particular becomes a more advanced science, 
the implications for eugenics becomes even darker and scarier. In order to discover more about the future of eugenics, I contacted Daniel Taylor. Daniel Taylor is the writer, researcher, editor, and webmaster for a website called oldthinkernews.com. Oldthinkernews.com is a website that provides numerous articles dealing with issues such as eugenics, and I have relied on Daniel Taylor's research heavily in researching this topic and others. I encourage my listeners to check out oldthinkernews.com and also to look on my website, corbettreport.com, for the full interview with Daniel Taylor. I asked Daniel Taylor about the possible future implementation of eugenics. We've all heard about Aldous Huxley and H.G. Wells in his book Time Machine, where we have Eloy and the Morlocks, and Brave New World, where we have the Epsilon at the bottom and the Alpha at the top. Now, these ideas are being picked up on by scientists today like Lee Silver, Thomas Campbell, and uh, Mishu Kakyo. And Lee Silver says that eventually we're headed to a society, a society where we have the gen rich who account for 10% of the American population who all carry synthetic genes and the gen poor who don't have access to these genetic modifications. What can the you tell us about the way these uh, genetic modifications might be used in a in a eugenicist sense? Well, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard about the Human Genome Project, and that project really has opened up doorways to new kinds of personalized medicine, which nobody can really argue against that. That's, I think we can see that as a good thing, but it also opens the doorway to designer baby, which opens a way to actually manipulate DNA and the traits of unborn babies. Absolutely. It goes right back to what you were saying with the um, the idea of almost a separation of species between lower humans and higher humans with these genetic modifications. And That's right. And, and Bertrand Russell spoke of that very same thing. And when he said that eventually society was split into two different classes where the lower classes would never think of rebellion, that it would be like sheep rebelling against the idea of eating mutton. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely amazing, I think, for people who are, who are seeing this for the first time, seeing someone like Bertrand Russell even spouting that type of eugenicist ideal. Um, the most insidious aspect of this is is the idea that this eugenics ops actually isn't targeting the lower classes it's targeting the elite so that in a way it becomes a eugenics ops by by default in that the only people who will be able to benefit from these uh, technologies are the ones who can afford them so the only ones who will be able to propagate will obviously be the super elite well that's right and even now it's interesting to see that we're going into a, a, a two-tier society economically right now in the United States because the concentration of wealth is really pulling in the top 1% to 3% of the population. And really, the United States is going into a, a recession, maybe even a depression right now. And Thomas Campbell was 
another eugenicist, and he talks about this idea that the only people that are going to be able to afford these, quote, upgrades are going to be the, quote, most successful generative lines. This is what he says in his paper, The Moral Imperative of Our Future Evolution. He says, a million dollars per conception seems a great underestimate to me for the beings who hold evolution's frontier. And I guess it's important to note that this is not science fiction. This is something that even, as you note in your newest article, Trends to New World Order Part 2, even the UK Ministry of Defense is talking about this type of thing. Well, that's right. And even the, the CIA, in their report, Global Trends 2015, they talked about how these, there are trends towards society becoming increasingly divided with globalization and economically, and even the, these new life extension technologies as well. And the most disturbing thing is that um, in those reports, they talk about how um, the UK Ministry of Defense report, for instance, talks about how this might cause uh, problems within societies that might have to be put down by the government, rebellions and insurrections. Well, that's right. They talk about the middle classes becoming a revolutionary class, in fact, and, and rebellion against this globalization and these inequality. Absolutely, and it's easy to see how this could turn into that type of scenario or that situation. So what do you see as a way for for the average person or the average citizen like you or me to to combat these trends or to to work against this eugenicist operation? Well, I think one of the keys is just education and spreading the word about these things because general population really isn't keyed in on these trends in science and these developments, and this, but the elite are. So I think education among the general population and having a, a discussion about these things. I couldn't agree more, and I think uh, your website is one of the key ways to, to get the information out. You've done some excellent articles and some great research on this subject and uh, many other subjects that relate to the New World Order. Daniel Taylor, from one old thinker to another, I'd like to thank you very much for joining me on the Corbett Report today. Uh, thank you for talking to me. Thank you. I'm great to be with you. For more information about those disturbing trends, including the separation of species into gen-rich and gen-poor genetically modified human beings, I again suggest that you check out Daniel Taylor's articles from oldthinkernews.com including articles like Endgame, The Rabbit Hole Does Not End Here, Parts 1 and 2, Trends to New World Order, Part 1 and 2, Coercive Population Control, From the Mouth of Frank Notstein, and Rockefeller and the New World Religion. I think my listeners are getting a sense that this is an important subject that ties into most of the other subjects reported on by the Corbett Report, one which we will obviously be returning to again and again in the future. As Daniel Taylor suggests, please get out there and do the research and help spread the word about this research. The more people who know about this plan, the less people they can fool with their eugenicist machinations like the hijacked environmental movement, which won't talk about the key environmental issues, including genetic modification, but dwell on fantasy issues like carbon dioxide in order to implement a carbon tax to deindustrialize the first world and to reduce us to the level of feudal serfs. 
I am your host, James Corbett. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Corbett Report. And I remind all my listeners to please get that article about FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds from my website. and Get that link out to as many people as you can. Thank you again and join me again next week for another episode of The Corbett Report. is only trying to befriend you. When Dr. Brooks reported your case, we gave you financial help at once. But now we find you need more than that.